I would like to describe a field in which little has been done, but in which an enormous amount can be done. This field is not quite the same as the others in that it will tell us little of fundamental physics, but it will tell us much about the strange phenomena that occur just below our perception. In contrast to the natural philosophers of the past, the scientists of this field delve into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. Their quest is to understand and create the imperceptible. After all, there is plenty of room at the bottom. Hello, welcome to the Materialism Podcast, an exploration of the past, present, and future of material science and engineering. I'm Taylor Sparks, an associate professor of material science and engineering at the University of Utah, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Andrew Falkowski, and today we're joined by an old friend of mine, Dr. Michael Signatovich. Michael, you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, so I'm Michael. I uh, went to undergrad with uh, Taylor. Uh, we parted ways for a while, and then he came back and actually ended up being my <laughs> professor for <laughs> a year or two there. Um, I've been working in the in the medical devices industry f- since '09, so approaching actually a, a decade so far. I currently work at uh, Edwards Life Sciences. We make a variety of uh, medical products that help uh, treat the heart, and I'm excited to be here. And we're lucky to have him because I say this all the time about Mike, but he's legitimately the smartest person I know. And he's got some really cool things and actual real-world experience about using the things that we're going to talk about in this episode. So maybe to get started, I just want to tell you about this curious experience that was my first exposure to the materials that we're going to talk about. It goes way back. I was either a freshman or a sophomore in college, so I was really new. And I was taking a class where it had some built-in field trips where we actually had to go out to industries and see materials in action. And I remember we went to this place. It was out on kind of like the bad side of town in Salt Lake, this nondescript brick building. We're waiting out there. And then this guy lets us in, and one of the very first things I notice when we walk in this sort of warehouse is they have this fish tank, right? This aquarium-looking thing sitting on the floor, except there's no top to it. It's open-topped, and when you look inside, it's not full of fish. It has, like, a human body inside of it, but it has, like, transparent skin. It's like a mannequin. Picture, like, a mannequin that you could sort of see through its skin, but you can see veins running all the way through it. There's water running in and out of it. It was the most surreal, strange things ever. And what they had us do was right away they told us about these little guide wires for special types of surgery that I'd never even heard of at the time that you can go in, you know, a vein or an artery in your leg, for example, guide it through the body carefully, and there's this whole process to doing it, and you can actually do surgery, you know, in the brain or in the heart or in really remote places. And you do this obviously without chopping a person open. Okay, Mike, so what I'm curious is was this just an exercise and sort of hypothetical possible someday future treatments, or is this something that we actually do? Uh, This is something we actually do. If you can keep from opening up the body and just do minimally invasive surgeries, the outcomes for the patient are a lot better. So uh, there's kind of two aspects to to what we're talking about. One, how do you deliver the, the, the medical device into the body? And two, the actual device, right? So sometimes you have a medical device that's fairly large, you need to be able to get it into its location in a very small form. And so there's a lot of uh, interesting material science that goes into this, both from the final medical product and from the delivery system. Mm-hmm. I'm listening to the description you're giving of this artificial body and veins in this fish tank, and then this description of being able to take very complex technical biomedical devices and wire them through the veins without having to insert it. And it sounds right out of a science fiction film. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, and, uh, you know, these, you know, 
fake bodies that we're referring to, they, they're important because they allow engineers to design uh, you know, medical products from an R&D standpoint of view and see if you know, they can work their way through the body. But doctors also use these oftentimes as their training to try to you know, learn how to navigate you know, medical devices through the body to their final destination. And so what sort of things do you have to consider, right? Like, as you're trying to guide this wire, what factors are going to be important from the wire's properties or the user's? Right. Like, what does the user need to know? Yeah, the overall uh, delivery system obviously has to be small, right? It's got to have a small diameter. Um, and how big are veins? You're talking like a centimeter max? Like, how yeah. big are they? Yeah, I mean, they're pretty small. I mean, uh, you know, the... Normal surgeries, there. There's this large vein that that's in the crotch area, and that's where most of these things go. But you know, sometimes you're going to the heart, sometimes you're going into the brain, right? And so, depending on where you're going, you have different sizes. If the device you're delivering is a very small diameter, like for an example, a stent that's going to be used to open up a blockage in the heart or somewhere in the leg, that's typically very small, but if you're delivering, for example, a heart valve, that heart valve is expanding to 30 millimeters. So it has to be in a compressed state, but it's still kind of large. And, you know, you got to, you know, the it's being delivered through a device that has to be able to steer into the body. As you know, like veins and arteries, they split and they have many forks in them. And you got to be able to say, I want to go left instead of right. I got to be able to do a U-turn in the body and then another U-turn in the body and still be able to go forward. So how strong are veins? Like, what, is there any risk of puncturing a vein and going outside of it? There is, um, which is uh, why, you know, from a, you know, the delivery system is typically some kind of a, like, the middle part of it, the the slightly more stiff part is, uh, you know, some kind of a advanced metallic alloy, but there's like a sheath around it, right? And that's typically a, a polymer, and you don't want that thing to be have a lot of friction when it's going into the body. So, you know, those are a lot of surface properties that we're also looking at to make sure that you're not putting a tremendous amount of force as the doctor is pushing this up into the body. So. What you're describing, it sounds like a pretty interesting engineering design problem. I mean, think of the different constraints you've got. It has to be pushable because the doctor is pushing it in from, you know, the leg or whatever. And then it needs to be steerable, right? You have to have it to be visible because the doctor can't just, you know, x-ray vision into your eyes. We have to actually have something that's going to absorb x-rays so there's a contrast or put fluorescence or something on it so you can see it. And then you have to have torque because we're going to have to be able to turn this thing and navigate different pathways, right? And so there's different materials that fit these criteria of pushable, steerable, visible by x-ray and, and having torque. And some of the first materials they did this with, you know, you've got steel. You can actually just take a very thin steel wire. Um, you can take, you can coat that with something like these biocompatible polymers. Um, however, if you wanted to traverse some of these really tortuous pathways, steel has a problem in that once you bend it, it's going to keep that bend in it if you go past its plastic deformation point. And once it's bent, that's pretty negative. So in, in fact, what I've seen, some of these things they do, it's like a guitar string. You've got a steel core, and then it's wrapped with a really tight coiled metal around it, and that gives it some additional flexibility and helps it bounce back. Or we can move to the material that we're going to be talking about today, which is a shape memory alloy. Believe it or not, it sounds like science fiction, but when we say a shape memory alloy, that's something that once you bend it, 
you can get it to go back to the shape where it started from, which again sounds unreal, but these things already exist and have been for quite some time. You want to tell us a little bit about the history of them, Andrew? Yeah, for sure. So the first documentation of a shape memory alloy dates back to 1932. Um, There's a guy, Arne Olander, and he notices that the transformation of the cadmium gold alloy was reversible. After that, it kind of goes unnoticed. Not many people are really talking about it. We go to 1951 and we get Chang and Reed, and they're the ones who first coined this term, the shape memory effect, to describe this thermoelastic behavior that occurs between a copper and zinc alloy. So this is, again, the same reversible reaction where there seems to be some sort of transformation where the material seems to be able to remember. And so the research into SMAs really only picks up in the 1960s. And so 1963, you have William Bueller, and he discovers the nickel-titanium alloy and that they exhibit this effect. So like many scientific discoveries that we've talked about, it sort of happens by chance. So he's working for the Naval Ordnance Laboratory, and he's trying to make a material for the nose tip of a missile. So thinking about what you're trying to look for, you want fatigue resistance, you want impact resistance. And so he decides to test a 50-50 composition of titanium and nickel. And so to demonstrate it to his superiors, he takes a bunch of long strips of this material and he, you know, he bends them, he distorts them, he folds them into, the, into this accordion shape to show them that you can bend and manipulate this material and it's not going to break. It has high fatigue resistance. Well, if you think about a missile going through the atmosphere, there's going to be a lot of heat on that, right? So one of the superiors, the I think it was the assistant technical officer, he decides, okay, what is the heat resistance? What happens if I apply some heat to this? So he pulls out his pipe lighter, and he's got this crumpled up, you know, nickel titanium alloy, and he heats it, and right in front of everyone, it just returns to its original shape. Oh, that's shape. cool. That's a cool uh, and so just imagine being in the room, and you got all these crumpled up alloy, and then it just flattens. Imagine how amazing that would, would be. Would be completely unexpected behavior. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and dive into, you know, what, what Andrew just said is pretty remarkable. You plastically deform most materials, and the reason we call it plastic deformation as opposed to elastic is because it's permanent, right? Getting things, these things to go back is not typical at all. Um, so how does this actually work? To describe that, we have to introduce a couple things. So first off, a shape memory alloy only works because these types of materials have multiple different phases, right? And these are stable. Different phases are stable at different temperatures, okay? So, for example, what are phases? Um, you can think of phases in terms of, say, carbon. Carbon, we know, can exist as diamond, right? Pure carbon is diamond. But pure carbon is also graphite, right? And these things look and behave very differently because the atoms are arranged in very different ways. And there's other things, right? There's carbon nanotubes where if you've been watching the news this week, they just discovered a new 18-member ring of carbon, a new you know, phase of carbon. So um, if you wanted to switch between these things, that's the key aspect of shape memory alloys, that you can switch from one phase to another. Now, in carbon, it's not easy to switch between the phases I've described because the structures are just very different. Graphite is like these planes of atoms that are bonded together with sp2 hybridization, whereas diamond is a three-dimensionally bonded structure with sp3 hybridization, right? So if you were to try and to switch from one to the other, that's what we call a reconstructive phase transformation because major bonds and things have to be broken and reassembled. So it has to be reconstructed. But there's another type of transformation, which is called displacive. Uh, Mike, you want to tell us what a displacive transformation is all about? So this is a structure where you can go from one phase to the other without diffusion. 
uh, simply by just a coordinated movement of atoms or group of atoms relative to their neighbors. Martensitic transformations are a subclass of displacive transformations where displacement retains some undistorted lines in parts of the structure and is driven by strain energy in the lattice. So the classic picture depicting Martensitic transformations for shape memory alloys has cubes stocked, uh, stacked on top of one another, um, all ordered. We call this the austenitic phase. Then the Martensitic transformation takes place by shifting rows of atoms to the left and right. So in the end, it looks zigzag, like an accordion. The accordion folds are symmetrical, like a mirror image about each zag, or zig. This uh, reflection symmetry means that each of these zigs can be considered a twin defect. Oh, cool. So as I understand Martin site uh, transformation, it's all about cooperative movement of atoms. They all sort of shift together. And so you're saying it was nice and organized, but then you get sort of whole rows of atoms cooperatively shifting either, you know, left or right as a function of different layers until it creates this zigzag. Thing. Exactly. So now that's interesting, but why on earth does that give us this huge ability to be plastically deformed? And then why on earth would it ever go back? Okay, there's two questions there. First off, why is there increased plasticity? Well, you have all these zigzags. Imagine if you took an accordion, yeah. and if you, you stretch that thing out, you're basically lining up those zigzags, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of what's happening. We're detwinning it by making these things line up, so that allows for lots of deformation. But the question of why it goes back, that's a more interesting one. That has to do with which phase is stable at which temperature. Okay, so before we talk about how these two phases have anything to do with shape memory, what we need to recognize is that there are two different crystal structures and they exist above or below different temperatures. Or in other words, one phase wants to exist at high temperatures and if you cool that temperature down, the other phase is gonna to wanna to exist. And that's gonna happen spontaneously. We call that the Martensitic reaction. As it goes from austenite to martensite, that is a spontaneous reaction that's gonna occur in these materials. So the Martensitic phase of shape memory alloys is also referred to as the superplastic phase. When in this phase, a tremendous amount of plastic deformation can be induced into the material without causing significant damage to the overall structure. Upon transition back to the austenitic or superelastic phase, the material will physically reorient itself into its pre-deformed shape. So imagine for a moment you have a wire that is completely straight in the austenitic phase. The wire, will, the wire will return to its straight shape even if bent, twisted, and deformed because it's super elastic. Take that same wire and convert it to the martensitic phase and it will be super plastic and whatever bends, twists, or deformations you induce will remain. Now take your deformed wire and convert it back to the austenitic phase and it will become straight again. This can be done over and over again and the wire will always return to being straight. If, I, if I'm understanding this correctly, what you're saying is we have a wire, right? And it, it's kind of stiff. It has a little bend to it, but it's going to return to that, that original stiff shape. And that's in this austenitic phase. Yes. If we lower the temperature, a new phase becomes more stable, this martensitic phase. And then we can bend the wire sort of all over the place. It's very malleable, very ductile. But then if we heat it back up to that original temperature, it'll return to being straight. Is that right? Exactly. Imagine if paper clips had this property. It'd be awesome. That's pretty incredible. Pretty incredible that this exists. So I guess one of the key things here is like you want to get the shape that you want it to stay in by forming it at these high temperatures, but then it's going to be used maybe at room temperature below that transition temperature. 
and it's going to be able to be deformed. Like imagine you have a pair of glasses, right? And you accidentally step on it and you bend it. Well, you could heat that thing back up and all of a sudden, voila, it's back to its normal shape. Is there any way to sort of tune that temperature? Like is that sort of what nature gives us or what do we have there? So um, when it comes to these SMAs, uh, the chemistry is extremely important, the ratio of two atoms. So for example, what they were doing in the Naval Ordnance Lab, they were working with titanium and nickel at a ratio of 50-50. Well, that ratio, 50-50, is extremely important. If you move to 51% titanium, 49% nickel, your transition temperature will be dramatically different. At the same time, getting a large quantity of very pure 50-50 material is very difficult. So uh, oftentimes uh, what we do is we will get a bulk you know, material, let's say a tube made of uh, this titanium nickel alloy that's around 50-50. And we now want to fine tune the transition temperature. Well, we will take it through some kind of annealing step. And at elevated temperatures above, you know, 300 degrees Celsius or 400 degrees Celsius, depending on what you want to do, uh, you can start migrating, for example, nickel out of a, the crystal and into a grain boundary. And then basically what you're doing there is making small changes to the chemistry of your material and therefore changing the phase transition temperature and tuning it to whatever you want. And, and so it's interesting, we've, we've been talking about the, the high temperature phase, let's say it's austenite, and you cool it down, it goes to martensite. That might happen at a temperature, let's call it 70 degrees Celsius. What's interesting is that when you go back, it doesn't happen at the exact same temperature. It's a little bit higher, right? It might be 100 degrees Celsius. So we call this a hysteresis, right? That basically it has to build up a certain amount of strain energy before that transition occurs or some sort of energy before it happens. And this hysteresis actually becomes useful for a number of different devices. Okay, we've talked a lot about what SMAs are and how they work. We're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about the applications and how people are using them today. Okay, this episode is brought to you by matmatch.com. And I've got a question for you guys. How many different grades of aluminum are out there? Any idea? Give me your best guess. At least two. At least two, okay. <laughs> um, I would say over 100. Yeah, there are 530 different grades of aluminum, right? So when wow. people say, like, my aluminum pop can, aluminum's not aluminum. There's 530 types. So now my next question is, like, would you as engineers know offhand the exact grade to use for some given application? Okay, so I actually had a really interesting story about this. I'm taking MSC 3010, the processing class here, and we need to make a ceramic. And part of that is choosing the composition of alumina that I need to actually get to build my ceramic. And that was a challenge because it was like, where do I even go? Like, I don't even know where to even scope about selecting. Yeah, like does purity matter? Does it not matter? Can you figure out the properties associated with it? Mm -hmm, and um, the grain size and all that. Yeah, I think this is a common problem for engineers is trying to figure out, like, we know broadly that steel and aluminum behave different from one another, but when you zoom into the details, it gets really complicated. 
So MapMatch is great because they've built a tool that engineers can use for free. You go to mapmatch.com, you punch in the properties you want, and out will come a very specific type of aluminum and somebody who will sell it to you, right, which is the service they provide. So it doesn't mean you have to understand all 530 different types of aluminum. You can use a resource like MapMatch to find the exact one that has the specific properties you want at the lowest price. So do they have other things? Is, is it just aluminum on there? Oh, yeah, great question. So obviously they do have lots of metal alloys, but it's it covers all the things. So I was actually looking recently for some high thermal conductivity fibers, right? I wanted it to be flexible. And you can actually, you can search under, I think it's form, whether you want, you know, a monolithic thing or if you want fiber. So I selected fiber. I selected it that it needed to have a certain thermal conductivity and out comes a couple things and where I can buy them, which is pretty slick. I wish I had that <laughs> 15 years ago when I was in school. So check it out for yourself. Head over to matmatch.com and see whether or not you can find the next useful material by punching in the exact properties you need in their free-to-use website. Okay, we're back from our break. Um, we've talked about the basics of shape memory alloys, a little bit about how they work. Um, let's dive into some of the other applications and unique properties about them. Uh, we started out talking about they were used in medical applications. And if you've heard of shape memory alloys and seen them before, probably you saw a stent, right? The stent was really small, and then it goes in the body, which is at a warmer temperature, and that causes it to sort of blow up and self-inflate to clear some sort of blockage. Uh, they do this for angioplasty, right, and things like that. But there's got to be other cool applications of this. So, Mike, you're, you're in the medical device industry. You go to these trade shows. What sort of other crazy ideas do these engineers cook up? Yeah, so, you know, the shape memory alloys, you can kind of think of it as two things, right? The entire product is maybe a shape memory alloy, or small, uh, a small component of an overall medical product is a shape memory alloy. So two things that really kind of stick to mind is uh, there was like um, uh, a corrective footwear application where, you know, in order to correct bunions, right? And so they needed essentially a, a, a shape memory alloy to maintain a certain pressure on the big toe. Did that just like kill the whatever a bunion is? <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I don't know. It was, <laughs> apparently it's a problem in some countries. Amazing. Um, and uh, so it was essentially like a metal rod that, you know, at, in the beginning it would be extremely bent, right? And over the weeks, as as the person continues to wear this this footwear, you know, the, the big toe starts to straighten out and, 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 the, uh, and the SMA you know, becomes straight, right? So a, a regular it. material would just bend and then it's not doing its job anymore. But this, exactly. because it's warm, will keep on pushing back. Yeah, yeah. God, that's cool. Um, another application I saw that's a little bit more serious perhaps is uh, bone elongation procedures. So it was essentially, uh, it was a small nitinol component in a much larger medical device where you put essentially a rod into a the the leg bones of a person who needs their bones elongated, and then you it has like a ratchet in it. So you basically twist your foot in one direction, and it no creates way. like a ratcheting action, <laughs> elongating it. So you basically ratchet one way, the other way. You wait two weeks, and then you ratchet it again and again, and slowly the foot incredible. Okay, so gets longer. What is it? Is there a potential for someone to accidentally ratchet? Um, I don't recall whether this uh, ratcheting could be done at home or whether you had to go to okay. like a, uh, yeah, a your doctor's say, office. Like, if I, mean, I like twist my leg one way, is that going to just? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't recall. I mean, there might have been some kind of like an external like magnetic field that maybe opens up a lock or something. But it does, you know, um, 
if you have this inside the leg, then you don't necessarily have to have like um, like metal rods sticking out of your leg that they tighten from the outside to elongate your leg, which can create you know other complications like infections and whatnot. So tons of damage. Yeah, it's just such an unusual property for something to be able to go back after deformation that I'm not surprised that we're seeing so many bizarre and interesting engineering applications. So Andrew, I, I know that it's used for lots of other things. Can you tell us some of its other interesting applications? <laughs> well, I mean, like one of its properties, the reason that it's so interesting is because it has a very high fatigue resistance. And what we mean by this is, right, when you, you, when you have a material and you bend it, right, within its crystal structure, when you make that bend, you start to introduce defects. And if you have enough of these defects, they start to stack up. And that's what eventually causes the material to break because the defects are inhibiting the structure of the material. And so when we have our SMAs and they convert to that martensitic phase, they're very flexible. And when, you're, when it's being bent and when it's, when it's in that flexible state, it is incurring defects. But what makes these materials so cool and very unique is that when you return to that austenite phase, the stable one, those defects are annihilated. And so you can endure those defects wow. that would normally eventually cause material to fatigue and eventually break. And then you can recover that damage and essentially reverse it. Now, not almost not entirely right so one of the issues is that this is assuming that you have a 100 percent transformation yeah so in the event that you initiate the transformation from the martensite back to austenite let's say there's still some residual martensitic phase in the austenite if there's any defects associated with that bit of martensite those are now in your austenite phase and that's permanent so those defects can no longer be recovered and so but, but still like compare that to like a regular material like take like a paperclip made out of aluminum if you bend that back and forth, I don't know, 10 times, it's going to break. It's over. I don't know how many times it's going to last. Not very many. But you're saying with these SMAs that they're going to be able to cycle you know, many, many more times, which on, it opens up all sorts of other applications where high cycle or many, many times where it has to survive that transformation is necessary. Yeah, a lot of the literature cites millions of cycles that these materials are able to endure before breaking. And one of the, um, one of the things that you want to look for is to try and prevent the presence of these martensitic phases from coming into the transformation and being residual is that you want to make sure that, right, you design your SMA to exist within a certain temperature range and to transform at certain temperature ranges. If you exceed those temperature range in your application, that's going to enhance the possibility that you're going to have issues where it's not going to fully transform. The other thing is if you strain it too much. So if you have a, an issue where it's undergoing a lot of stress and it's beyond the scope of what the SMA is designed for and it's oh, beyond yeah. what those phases can handle, you're going to get permanent defects. So what happens a lot is, you know, you might have an SMA that can endure, let's say, 8% strain. They'll only use it in an application that's like 3 or 4% so that there's n there isn't any risk of it exceeding that. You can also have shape memory alloys that Instead of being thermally activated, this transformation, they can be activated magnetically. And so this avoids a lot of the problems that come with the heat-induced transformations because when you have to heat something up, one, you have to wait for the time it takes to heat that thing up. And then if you want it to cool down, you have to wait for it to cool down. So if you use something like resistance heating to heat it up, it's going to take some amount of time. And so your applications are sort of limited. Oh, cool. But a field, you can switch that really fast. On and, like, on and off. And almost instantly. So you can have very rapid actuations and transformations. With and things. do the transformations happen quickly? Because you're talking about whole atoms have to write cooperatively shift. That's a, on the time scale of things, this I imagine would achieve pretty high frequency switching um, relative yeah. to the lower ones. I don't, I don't have any sort of quantitative thing, but I imagine it's faster. Just 
even without having to wait for the, the heating up process. And what's really cool is that these have the same specific strength as SMAs. So these aren't super niche applications. Like this isn't just like a tiny little like tiny wire trying to move something. These SMAs have what we call a work density and the work density of these SMAs is about 10 joules per centimeter cubed. Okay, that probably doesn't mean that much to you, but let me put it in perspective. This is a work, uh, a work density that's about 25 times greater than that of an electric motor. And so these materials are actually able to lift 100 times their own weight in terms of the force that they can apply when right. they undergo this transformation. That's incredible. And so what's really cool about these magnetic shape memory alloys is that they also have these same properties and they can do the same amount of work. So... Andrew, you were gone over the summer at Texas A&M, and I think that part of your experience was actually working with shape memory alloys, or at least uh, the group there is interested in them. Can you tell us a little bit about what you learned over there? Yeah, absolutely. Something that I've seen, so SMAs are already pretty advanced materials, right? They can operate in different functions, and we can tailor them to those different functions. By the way, there's lots of different SMAs. We've been talking about nitinol in this episode, but even polymers, there's all sorts of different materials that mm -hmm. actually work for this. Yeah, yeah, so... We're specifically talking about nitinol, but there's all this sort of customization that can go into that. But people are taking this a step further with trying to 3D print these SMAs now. So now imagine, right, we can have this, this bending and this actuation in this, in this material, but now we can locally choose the actuation and locally tune this. So an example of where you might see this is, and the example that I'm kind of familiar that I've seen is that they make a hand, they 3D print a hand out of this uh, nitinol. And so each finger on the hand is tuned differently to a different temperature of transformation. So they put it in boiling water, and as it heats up, the hand slowly closes with, with each finger closing at a different rate. So then imagine the different applications yeah, so you can cool. have where each tiny bit of a material can have a different transformation temperature, transformation rate. And so the opportunities for very customized advanced materials explode when you consider this. Now. There's definitely a lot of challenges that come with trying to 3D printing print something so complex, right? They're using like laser bed, so they're basically firing a powerful laser at a bed of powder and trying to get the microstructure you want, trying to make sure there's no defects that come from powder processing or powder sintering. It's but really cool material mm -hmm. science happening going on there. That's awesome. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I also assume uh, maintaining the the chemistry is also very difficult. Right, you're right, because like the chance of diffusion happening and you're getting just the pure nickel, the pure, pure titanium, it, there's a lot of other things that you have to consider. Taylor, you mentioned that there's other types of materials we can use that exhibit this shape memory effect. One of those is polymers, and these actually are very relatively new in the shape memory alloy, or in, I guess <laughs> the shape memory space, shape memory material space, but they actually have a number of advantages as people are starting to explore them. They're really easy to uh, manufacture, they're really easy to train. The costs of manufacturing them and training them are about 10% less than they are for these alloys. And so, theoretically, these are capable of reaching the same mechanical properties of SMAs as well. So, they're in a real position to be used either alongside or in similar applications to SMAs. And what's really cool is that because of how complex polymers can be and how m much we can design and tailor them, not only can we have one shape that it remembers, but you can have two or three or four. Oh, so you that's could, cool. As you scale temperature, you could have different things, but it's not just temperature with these either. So instead of having like the single Martensitic transformation, which gives you the single shape memory mm -hmm. of, say, something like nitinol, now you can have multiple phases that they can switch between? Absolutely. And you can do two phases with the nitinol, but the mechanical properties suffer greatly when you have two memorized shapes that it can go into. 
I've had this question this whole time. Why on earth do they call it nitinol? I know that it's a mixture of nickel and titanium, but why that name? Is that just a catchy name? No, so uh, you'll, uh, the audience will recall the, when you were giving the history of uh, the shape memory alloys, and you had mentioned the discovery of nitinol by a uh, by essentially uh, engineers working at the Naval Ordnance Lab. So they actually named nitinol as a result of that. So you have Ni, nickel, Ti, titanium, oh, no and then Naval Ordnance Lab, N-O-L, nitinol. And that's where the name wow. came from. That is super cool. And I, just as a side note, I love to see defense funding turning into things that people use all the time because sometimes we think, oh, it's just making for missiles and stuff, but here's something that now improves quality of life in huge ways with these different surgeries they can do with it. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, I think, a wrap for this episode. Um, we want to introduce a very brief segment and where we're going to have a Q&A segment at each of our episodes. And so we actually had a few questions asked this week. And so this first one comes from Emily Brown, who says, what's the difference between materials chemistry and material science and engineering? And then how do they approach issues differently? And how is it you know, different on the day-to-day? So what do you guys think? I actually don't know. <laughs> I was gonna. I was. I would say I was that, playing on asking you. So I would say that they're gonna be very similar. Um, materials chemists, like the chemists that sort of do a materials emphasis, I would say that they focus on synthesis a little bit more than we do. In material science, synthesis is definitely there, but there's an emphasis on understanding how synthesis processing leads to properties, right? And there's because it's an engineering discipline, it's a little more looking at applications, like we've been doing today, right? It's all been about gearing the the right material for some application, whereas chemists sometimes just want to see how they can make it, if they can make it with a different route, maybe it's more efficient. And so I'm guessing that's one of the differences, but you're really looking at two, this is basically the same thing, materials chemistry versus MSE, except you're gonna get paid a lot better as an engineer. Yeah, and oftentimes when it comes to any type of particular engineering field, you know, once you're a material scientist and engineer, you can choose to focus more on the chemistry side in your career, or you can choose to focus more on the engineering side of your career. So there Absolutely. really isn't any, you know, difference. I mean, I'm biased because I teach in a material science and engineering yeah. department, but I think that, yeah, there's no difference. And there's a lot of uh, small advantages for engineering, if anything. So the next question comes from Ian Brandon Anderson, who says, what type of music do you guys like to listen to? So I'm curious, what? go ahead, Andrew, want to kick that off? So honestly, it pretty much changes on a weekly basis. We, we could almost have this as a recurring question and it would, it, would, it would probably change. But honestly, I tend to kind of swap largely between sort of like indie music. So lately, I've been really into Interpol. I don't know if you've oh, ever yeah, listened to them, but I'm a really big fan. Like they have that very familiar indie vibe to them, but some of their like- They're kind of dark too. Yeah, they're kind of depressing, but some of their guitar licks and all that are just very, very good. Like I, I can really jive to that. But then I also am a big fan of like electronic music. Um, I like to listen to a lot more of the indie side of that as well because I think you get really interesting interesting music that way. So, so I'm the same. I jump between lots of genres. I'll just say who I've been listening, who I've been just absolutely wearing it out lately is Shaky Graves. Can't get enough. If you haven't heard of him, look him up. You won't regret it. And find his live stuff. Yeah, I'm exactly the same way. I have a, you know, a large catalog of music. It depends on how my day is going. I might binge classical music for a week or two, and then I'll move into rap. Lately, I've been exploring a lot of uh, children's music because I have a little girl, <laughs> and you know, know we don't, don't want to expose her to rap. But you know, when you're singing Fair about uh, 
you know, frogs and, and bunny rabbits. It kind of really... Did you guys hear about the uh, Major League Baseball player who changed? Because they always have their walk-up music, usually rap, and he had Baby Shark as his walk-up <laughs> music. It's so great. Well, the other thing, it depends on the mood or what I'm doing. Like, if I'm studying, I don't want oh, anything yeah. with lyrics. I'll yep. usually do, like, they have, like, chill hop music. Everyone's yep. into that. Or classical. Yep. Lately, I just let it... Oh, what was it? The other day, I was doing something, and I just let it go on YouTube. YouTube play, and, like, man. Yeah. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, I like this song. I looked, it's like Chopin's Funeral March. I was like, oh, man, <laughs> pretty dark. Okay, well, we're going to wrap it up. Uh, let me just say that if you've got questions or feedback, we love, love, love getting these questions. Uh, if, you've got, if you've got a suggestion for an episode or anything else, shoot us an email at materialism.podcast at gmail.com. Um, we also interact with listeners quite a bit on the r slash materials subreddit. Um, you can find us on Instagram. That's the at materialism.podcast. Again, any way you want to connect, we're always looking to find uh, what our audience is looking for in future episodes. And as always, we're super grateful for the people that put awesome music into our podcast. That's Alphabot and Colobite for doing you know, our, our transitions and for making the intro and outro to this. And so we will see you guys next time. The adventures of fire, electricity, magnetism, iron, lead, glass, silk, cotton, the makers of tools, the captors of lightning, the architect, the engineer, the musician, are all beneficiaries of the materials of this world and are bound only by their imaginations in manipulating those materials. 